0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word.
1: And so what Jesus is saying is that, look, if you hold me with this high esteem, if you hold me with affection as you say you do, then why wouldn't you obey me? That's what he's saying. Now, to appreciate fully what he's saying, we have to first understand what that title means and what it doesn't mean in the context of the culture of Jesus's day, in particular at this point in his ministry. The Greek word Jesus used here for Lord is the word kurios. And the Greek word kurios in its present, I'm going to use a big word here, theological context, right? The way we tend to interpret it most commonly today is most often used to refer to a divine sovereign. So, in other words, when it's used in context of Jesus, Lord, The idea is that we're using it to ultimately say that we recognize that he's the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords, and he's divinity, and he holds authority over everyone and everything. But in the first century, that term had a whole lot of other applications as well. It could simply be used to mean sir. A sign of respect. It could simply be used as an expression to say master, which would be common for those who would follow a teacher. It it could be common to a slave to call their owner master or owner. You know, it could be used in that term of an owner. It could have been used as as the word for husband in reference to a husband by a wife. So understanding the context Jesus is using here is important to understanding his overall point that he's trying to make. And based on the fact that this dialogue is taking place relatively early in Jesus' ministry, this is happening on the front end, it's safe to assume that he's most likely not using it in the most commonly understood context, but he's using it more in the one that would have been more common to them, which would have been a title of respect, a title of esteem that people were applying to him as their teacher and not as a title that indicated their recognition that he was the divine sovereign, the divine son of God. Not yet. Now, if that assumption, if that assumption for this passage is correct, then Jesus is simply applying this idea as he's issuing this challenge to those who are following him as their esteemed teacher which would include both believers and unbelievers alike. And what he'd be saying to them simply is this. Why do you apply this title of respect and affection to me as your teacher, and yet you're not doing what I as your teacher am asking of you? If you truly respect me, you would do what I say. It, you wouldn't just speak words of respect, but you would demonstrate your respect for me by doing what I've asked of you. You see, Jesus, I believe, is challenging the attitude of the people in the same way that Ezekiel, through the Lord, had challenged the attitude of people in his day as he ministered as a prophet. Here's what Ezekiel said, and listen how similar this is. It's a little bit more verbose and wordy, but it's listen to what he says. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30. It's the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, telling him about the attitude of the people, but he says this. Verse 30 of Ezekiel 33, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do, they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. You see, it's the same idea here. People are respecting him as a teacher. They say they respect him. They're coming. They're telling people, Oh, you got to come and hear him. You got to come and hear, you know, Ezekiel talk. You got to come and hear him. You got to hear what he's saying. But the reality is they're doing the same thing. They're not, they're hearing, but they're not obeying. They're not listening. This is a problem with people then and now. Many are drawn to those who share God's word with them, and and they say good things about them, and they praise them with their lips, but their actions do not align with the praise they give those who are ministering to them. They like the words being spoken, but they do not do them. Here's truth. Words that are not backed up by actions are meaningless, they're empty, and quite frankly, they're worthless. That's just the truth. And this is the truth, that Jesus is now challenging those who are following him. That's what he's saying to them. He's challenging them. Irrespective of whether or not they saw him as Lord in the fullest theological sense or simply in the sense that they see him as their esteemed teacher, if you truly see him as Lord, your actions will bear that out. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, why don't you flip over there real quick with me? Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Many people refer to this and say, well, this is the same thing. It's the same thing, it's just presented a little bit differently. Well, yes and no. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, Jesus issues a very similar challenge using very similar words. But in that passage, it is very clear that he has his divine authority in mind. There's no question about it in this passage. And he's speaking to a specific crowd of people regarding their salvation status. Look at what he says beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Not every one who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, unlike our passage here in Luke, In this passage, Jesus is specifically talking to those who know who he is. It's clear from the language they know who he is, but they're not redeemed or at least not in a redeemed relationship with him. They know he is God, and they even acknowledge him as such, but their actions, regardless of their words, reveal that they are not in a relationship with him personally. They're using his name for their own self-determined religious purposes but not out of the relationship they are personally in with him. When Jesus says in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The word knew is the same Greek word used to describe the kind of intimate knowledge a husband has with his wife. It's not merely knowledge of someone in the sense of having heard of them or having studied them or studied under them, but it implies a close personal relationship with him that is not based on works, but on a submitted heart. But on a submitted heart. Look, it is the truth that there are people who are going to be very surprised to learn that even though they have said, Lord, Lord, and, and done all sorts of good works in Jesus' name that he will one day say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Why won't he know them before you freak out and start going through the checklist of, oh, is that going to be me? You know, whenever you bring this passage up, it's like sometimes, you know, after discussions with people afterwards, you find out it was sort of like Jesus at the table. You know, that night he says one of you is going to betray me. And everybody's sort of like, is it me? Is it me? Listen, before you jump to conclusions, you need to think about why it is that he won't know them, and here it is, because despite all of their words, they really never knew him. Their relationship with him was a relationship based on what? A relationship based on works that they were doing, not, not one of true faith and dependence upon him. They've wrongly concluded that their spirituality was determined by what they did in this life rather than in the one in whom they entrusted their lives. The reality is that they trusted in themselves, in their own ability to do good works, albeit in Jesus' name, right? But it was still their works nonetheless, rather than simply trusting in Jesus and letting the good works flow out of that relationship with him. And anything short of simply trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus alone by faith and living in dependence upon him, making him the focus, will not end well. (laughs) It will not end well when it comes to salvation and eternal life, it won't matter how many good works you've done in his name. I don't care if you fed the poor. I don't care if you went and sacrificed all of your savings to go to another country. If you, I don't care if you were saying it in Jesus's name. If at the heart of those things, it was about you proving your spirituality, making yourself feel good about your spirituality through those things that you were doing, that self-dependent spirituality I can tell you this, Jesus will look at you one day and say, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So let me ask you this morning, what are you guys trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus and letting your works flow out of that relationship? Or are you busy about works and the relationship is just the vessel? It's just the tool that you use to do those works. Who are you trusting in? And so it's clear in this dialogue, which Matthew records, that Jesus is speaking about a completely different issue and and to a completely different crowd of people than he is here in our passage in Luke. And yet it's actually two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. In Matthew, he's talking to a people who see their salvation being established in their works, while in Luke, he's talking about the lack of fruitful works by those who claim to follow him as their teacher. One has a wrong focus that impacts eternal life, while the other has to do with fruitlessness that reflects hypocrisy on the part of those who claim to be his followers. Both are important issues, but they are also very different issues that we must not confuse. I point out that distinction because there is a teaching that's prevalent in many circles of Christianity today called Lordship Theology, where this verse, along with the passage in Matthew 7, as well as some other verses, are used to justify the idea, if you haven't made Jesus Lord of every area of your life, in other words, living in complete yieldedness to his control over every area of your life continually, then you are not really saved. Well, I most certainly believe that as saved people, we should most certainly Be living in submission to Jesus and he most certainly should have control over every area of our lives as Jesus says here in Luke why would we esteem and follow him and not do what he says right the idea is just foreign it should be foreign to us and yet I do not believe that you can take passages like this and use it to make a case for salvation also Jesus's lordship over our lives is a process of change It's a process of change, not an instantaneous transformation. He will be faithful to complete that which he has begun in you. But that, by its very statement, implies it is a process that's taking place. Look, I am still, you know, I, I know while Jesus changes our hearts instantaneously, I mean, there's no question about that. You put your faith in Jesus, he's given you a new heart. I believe he's given you the new, the new man. We use that term, but new man, new woman, right? He's made you new in the fullest sense of the meeting immediately upon salvation. But learning to walk out that new life, learning to walk that new man, that is a completely different matter altogether, right? Otherwise, why would Paul say to us, put off, put on, put off, put on? the idea being that we got to learn this we're still growing in this that's been done for us look i'm still finding areas of my own life where i realize i have not fully yielded to christ's authority i know that parts of my life where i'm still too much in control and sometimes it it's like he has to wrestle it out of my hands to get control of those areas and yet i know that i am a saved man who Christ is simply stretching and growing and maturing more and more with each and every passing day. Like Paul, I can say, and maybe you can relate to the same, but like Paul, I mean, think about Paul, the the great, the great apostle Paul, right? Our teacher, Paul, Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 16, Philippians three, verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise... God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul says, man, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm still growing. I'm still being stretched. I mean, he's so much saying that there's still areas in my life where I just realize I want to do good, but I don't do. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who's in control of those areas yet? Well, it's Paul. But the Lord is stripping those things out of his life. And Paul says, I'm, I'm looking forward. I know what Jesus is doing. I know this process of change is underway. I know I'm a saved man. I'm just not there yet. So look, if you read this passage in Luke in the wrong context, and then try to apply it to this idea of lordship theology of control over every area, Lord, Lord, and I failed, you'll end up with the wrong theology about it all. Jesus here in this passage in Luke is not addressing the evidence of a saved life, but he is addressing the hypocrisy of esteeming him and yet not doing what it is he's asked. And that we can feel conviction over, right? Even as believers, we know what he's asking of us. And if we're choosing not to do it, then we ought to hear these words ringing. You're calling me your esteemed teacher. You're calling me your Lord, and you're just choosing not to do this. What's the problem? What's the disconnect here? And so we grow. We grow. Verse 47, we'll finish this up. He finishes up this entire section. He says in verse 47, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream uh, stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus now concludes with this simple and yet important illustration that speaks to the kind of foundations people build their spiritual houses upon. You'll note that he gives the same illustration In in the similar passage that we just talked about in Matthew chapter 7, he basically talks the same thing. And even though the two accounts are addressing different issues and different audiences, the illustration is perfectly applicable to both of these discussions. I want you to note the two types of houses and foundations that Jesus talks about in this illustration. Number one, house built on a rock. House built on the rock. This is a foundation that Jesus says is the most stable and able to weather the storms that befall it, the spiritual storms that come. The implication is that this house is well established because the foundation is solid. It is immovable. But he also indicates that determination is required to build upon that foundation. Jesus says that it requires being willing to dig deep. They dug deep to find the rock. Now, in the sandy soil of that particular region of the world, those who wanted to build a house that was well-established and sound, they'd have to dig down through multiple layers of sand and silt to find the rock bed that existed beneath it all and, and, and then to build upon that. But you had to dig down to get there. We've been to Israel. It is all dust and sand. That's what it is. Everywhere you go, even where things are growing, yeah, there's some grass, but underneath the grass, it's still dust and sand. It's it's a silty, sandy part of the world, but there's a rock layer, and you dig and you dig until you find it, but that takes work. It takes work. They had to, to make digging their priority. There were no shortcuts, no lazy approaches. If they wanted the house to be well-established, they had to be willing to dig, and so too Jesus says that this is what's required if you want your spiritual house to be well-established and to stand. In this passage in Luke, he's equating it to the idea of obeying his commands, right? Obedience isn't always easy. Take it from me. Obedience is not always easy, but obedience is what's needed. That's what's needed. It's the digging deep that's required. It establishes us spiritually on the rock foundation who we know is who? Jesus himself. He's the rock, right? Now, look, obedience does not save us. Obedience does not save us, but obedience does firmly establish us, and that's important. So that's the first house. The second house, he says, is built on the earth with no regard for a foundation. In Matthew, he likens it to a man who builds his house On the sand and it's the same idea here because again in that part of the world the ground is naturally sandy and silty but here Jesus is simply saying that if you're not willing to dig deep to live an obedient life choosing instead to build your life on shifting soil of your own ideas your own choices living as you choose creating your own spirituality picking and choosing cherry-picking the things you'll obey and the things that you won't well even though it might be easier, what you've built isn't going to stand. It's not going to be established. When the spiritual waters rise, when the spiritual storm comes, all you've built, it'll just come crashing down. It'll just wash away. It won't matter how nice that house looks that you've built so quickly and so easily if it lacks the foundation it needs. If it isn't built in obedience upon Jesus as the rock, it will not stand. You know, I've been quietly watching through this entire season we're living in right now. And it is I mean, honestly, I'm not watching the world as as much as I'm watching Christians. See, and I'm watching my own life. Please don't think I'm doing the the, the fruit inspecting, right, without doing my own. I mean, I'm even questioning my own life in the middle of this. What do I believe? What have I built my life on? What is it that's important to me? And I'm watching so many Christians who are almost... They talk about Jesus, but they're so spun up over so many things about what they're losing in this world that it just makes me go, "What, what have you been building your spiritual house on? I've lost nothing. I've lost nothing. There's nothing this pandemic has taken from me. Yeah, I miss seeing people sitting here, but the truth is it hasn't changed one iota of what I have in Jesus Christ. Not a thing. And so I don't spend my evenings spinning, on what the country's doing what the world is doing or what's happening and how it's all going to hell in a handbag i'm not going to hell in a handbag because i have jesus (laughs) and i built my house on him and so the waters can come crashing and it's not changing anything doesn't mean the house doesn't rock i've been seen those houses down at the shore you know we've we've rented a house before down at uh, the outer banks you know and they're all built on those stilts but i know this They put most of those dug down deep through the sand to find a place they could find that rock. And if they couldn't, they put cement down there so that they could establish it. But if you ever watch, then some of those houses, when the hurricanes come, they don't get knocked out. Man, they're still swaying like they're going to come down. But the ones that are well established, they just don't collapse. And that's what Jesus is saying. So my question to you guys is, what have you built your house upon? Look, Jesus here, he's talking about this idea of obedience. And again, salvation is, is, is not obtained, nor is it maintained through works. And, and yet salvation and the stable life that Christ offers us as his disciples requires a willingness on our parts to dig deep, to find that spiritual foundation that's needed for everything spiritual to be established upon in our lives, a rock solid foundation that's only found in Jesus, and then to build on him. And then to build on him, as Scripture describes Jesus to us, right? In in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, he's the rock. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 10, he's the foundation. So you see, whether it be for salvation or, or for our lives as just his followers, we must be willing to dig deep and to establish our lives upon Jesus alone if we want our spiritual house to stand. There are no shortcuts. There are no workarounds. There's no lazy man's way there's that will suffice just a willingness to dig deep with a focus on the rock and how he would have us establish our spiritual house. You know, it is one of the things I've learned in counseling as a pastor. People want the easy solutions. They want you to tell them the easy solution. And generally the easy solution is not obedience to the scriptures, right? And so when they come to me and I lay out a scripture before them, I can tell in a matter of minutes, what they're building their lives upon. If they look and say, you know what? I've seen that verse before, and I've never obeyed it. Well, let's begin there. Let's begin to build. Now let's talk about how you can build on that verse, how you can walk that out. Contrast it with the person who comes in and says, well, I know what the Bible says, but that that just doesn't work. It doesn't work, really. Okay, says who? You, God? You put you in his place, right? That's all Jesus is saying here. Look, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Have you guys established your spiritual house upon the rock? I'm still building, (laughs) I'm still growing. The structure is underway, but I can tell you this. I chose a long time ago to build on the rock, not on my own ideas, not on my own way of doing things. Even when I find the scriptures hard to obey and I'm challenged by them, I might turn away for a short time, but I can't escape them. I just keep coming back to them because I know in the end that God knows better than I do, and I want to be, be obedient to him, not just as his disciple, but as, as my Lord and Savior, right, as both. I want to be obedient to him because I know that if I'm calling him that, then I want to live that and I want that to be a reflection of my life and I know as I do that, that the house will be established and he'll continue to build with it. Amen.